Hello, and welcome to the How to Get an Analytics Job podcast. My name is John David Arianson, and I'm your host. I'm what you would call a practicing professor. I have years of experience consulting in the analytics industry, and I have years of experience teaching analytics in the classroom at Greensboro College. This podcast is an ecosystem that I developed for my students so that they could get world-class career advice from leading analytics experts. To date, my students have got to ask questions directly to analysts and data scientists from Amazon, Apple, and Google. They've even got to talk directly to CEOs, CMOs, and presidents of companies who have been former clients of mine to get insights on how senior managers use data to drive their business decisions. If you're interested in becoming one of my students, check the links in the description down below. I'm currently offering two programs. One is a one-month career services program, and the other is an analytics apprenticeship program associated with Greensboro College. In both of those programs, we take a three-tiered hybrid approach. So you'll have access to pre-recorded asynchronous lectures, live group lectures in a cohort setting, and one-on-one coaching with experts in the analytics space. On average, our students are gaining about a $16,000 pay increase going through the program. On the high end, we've actually helped someone achieve a $54,000 pay increase. This means that on average, our students are recouping their investment between one to two months of landing their job. So if you're ready to take your career to the next level, click the links in the description and apply for our program. I would love to get to work with you. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy this podcast episode. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. So we've got a super exciting episode and we're going to be talking all about nonprofit analytics. So we've got Nick from Cape Fear Collective. We've got Tim Leesman from Code for Greensboro. And we've got Molly Welsh, who is, she's got a background in environmental science and is a data scientist. So we've got quite a full episode. Let me actually pull everybody in so we can just uh, introduce everyone. Although, uh, oh, there you go. So, how's everybody doing? Good, good. So, uh, you know, kind of not super hot here. I'm in Raleigh. How are y'all? I'm doing well. It is gray here in Greensboro, and it's been gray for the last week. So, I would take back some of that heat from last week as an alternative. I'm enjoying it. I feel I've got a cup of coffee. I am feeling super cozy. The summer was so hot. Molly, how are you doing? Uh-oh, can you hear us? Oh, I, I can hear you guys. I've got um like a five-second delay in the conversation, so sometimes the conversation's looping. I think it might be on my end. Oh, no. <laughs> well, how are you? We can wait for five seconds. I'm doing well. I just started hearing myself talk. I think I'm going to exit and come back in. Okay. So that's fine because we're going to hop into Nick. You're going to do a presentation to kind of um, illustrate your nonprofit because this this podcast has multiple functions. So the, one of the first functions is that, Nick, you're going to use this as like a Q&A you get, or a FAQ section because you get all these questions all the time about nonprofits. So you have kind of taken notes and put together a presentation. So let's just hop into that and I can pull up your slide deck. Sure. Yeah. Um, So uh, like John was saying, I, um, you know, I I get pinged a lot on LinkedIn with, you know, Hey, I see you're a nonprofit. I see that you're you're in kind of this, uh, you know, data for social good type sector. What's it take, you know, what kind of work are you doing? What's it take to get into that, that work, et cetera. So, um, basically going to kind of walk through an overview of my org and how we use analytics, one use case uh, for the group. And then at the end, just open it up to questions about working in nonprofits and any of the stuff that we went over uh, here in this deck. <clears throat> so without further ado, nonprofit analytics, name of the organization that I work at is Cape Fear Collective. Um, a little bit about 
Cape Fear Collective. We're in southeastern North Carolina, so really focused on a eight-county region around Wilmington, North Carolina, and, and really working to help nonprofits and government organizations address poverty, racism, health and education, socioeconomic disparity, uh, just really anything that kind of affects the, the, the people in, in the region. <clears throat> so our main uh, kind of uh, foundation or framework for the analytics that we do is this, um, this cloud-based uh, community data platform. So this, we call it our CDP. We've got 1,300 community metrics across these nine categories. So some of this stuff is publicly available, Census Bureau, FHFA, um, a couple of the big foundations, the Center for Disease Control, of, uh, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics, a lot more. But some others come from our partner sources like the local hospital, the local police department, the county, organ the county government, the city government. So we just basically put all this stuff into one place so it's easy for all these nonprofits to uh, to to access this information. One of the things that we we heard early on was, you know, I'm working in education, but I know that there's these these you know inseparable ties to health and economic outcomes, but I don't have that data. I don't know where to get it. So now all this stuff's in one place. We can quickly give this to the organizations that need it to, you know, apply for grants or measure their own incentives and programs. Or, or just really kind of target areas of need. <clears throat> um, so how we do our work, and this is going to look similar, I think, to, to people who are in the analytics space, you know, that we have a lot of the same challenges that um, other organizations have. But we have kind of this three-pronged approach to how we do our work at Cape Fear Collective. The first is this community engagement piece, which is so important. Um, you know, it, I, I think there's this kind of tendency to say, oh, well, these people don't know statistics, so they don't know data, so they don't really have anything to, um, to, to offer for this conversation. But that's just not true. There's this you know, people who've worked in, this, uh, in these sectors for a long time. And for example, like the people that I work with in housing in the Cape Fear region know more about housing and affordable housing and zoning and all these things than I'll ever uh, know and then I'll ever need to know because I, I bring the data and the statistics expertise. So how do I take those pieces of their expertise, identify metrics that need to come into our models and make sure that their uh, experiences and expertise are accounted for in everything that we do? That's kind of why this piece is, is important. And then kind of, you know, it increases adoption of, of model and tool uh, usage, et cetera. <clears throat> the next piece is this, <clears throat> what we call the lived experience. And, and people have a hard time kind of looking at this scatter plot here and saying, okay, you know, so what? I don't, that doesn't really mean anything. But once you kind of can unpack that and, and, and put a face and a story to each of these dots, um, it really helps the audience contextualize the, the data and also kind of aids in this hypothesis generation. So by looking at it and looking at some of the people who, who are actually, you know, looking at this, say, these are real people, or these are, you know, kind of, this is a real phenomenon that we're looking at. And here's what these people, you know, look like, think about these, these scenarios, et cetera. It helps us kind of say, well, I wonder if this is a piece of it, or I wonder if there's a disparity here. So we have actually a uh, New York Times bestselling author and, and journalist on our staff who whose job is really to kind of go out there as a part of his job is going out there as a beat reporter and actually interviewing people. So we go back and forth with the data where I say, hey, there's this there's this thing I'm seeing in the, the you know this downtown census tract. Why don't you go talk to some people down there? And he'll come back and he'll say, actually, I found these other interesting things while I was down there. We kind of go back and forth, and it really brings that lived experience into uh, into the models, that qualitative data uh, and research piece, you know, back into the, to the model validation. <clears throat> and then the last piece of this kind of three pronged approach is this, uh, this this struggle that we always have as data scientists and analysts, which is how do you communicate uh, technical and, and you know, challenging 
material to an audience that doesn't necessarily have the vocabulary or the skill set to, to to interpret that. And you know, maybe it's it's worse in the nonprofit sector. Maybe it's it's not, but it's a challenge nonetheless. And the way we like to approach it is um, typically there's been kind of two schools. There's you know, you'll hear people say like, well, you've got to water it down for the end users. Okay, so we can go kind of you know water it down or, or whatever you know kind of uh, idiom we want to use to to take these insights and you know yeah water them down or we can just say you know nope we're just going to present them as is and have you know people have to just just deal with it well there's this other third kind of option that's kind of meet them in the middle where by by kind of slightly simplifying the content but leaving enough in there that you're still challenging your your audience and kind of giving them we want to educate them and pull them up that continuum as as we're we're kind of uh, interacting with them so that every interaction we have with our our partners uh, we're giving we're empowering them with insights that they're they're able to to use but we're also challenging them and educating them on you know hey here's a radar chart here's a here's a a scatter plot. Here's how you read it. So every time they interact with us, they're learning uh, not just insights, but also more about how to ask better questions and how to better interact with with the data. <clears throat> um, I don't know if it if it makes sense to kind of pause for questions within, or if I, we should just go right into a use case. Um, so yeah. I'm not seeing any questions in the chat right now. And unfortunately, Molly is having a hard time getting back into the interface for some reason. But she was going to kind of be like our uh, talking head. Tim, do you have any questions? Oh, my God, always. <laughs> Nick's, Nick's work is just um, very, very cool and inspiring to me. And something that um, I want to talk about is the bigger picture of data for good. I think what... What the one question on what you've presented so far that I want to see if we can um, go a little deeper on is, and maybe the use case talks about this, but what you were just describing is almost like the competency we might call data literacy, right, for community members. And so when you have um, in organizations, we think about like building a, a data literate culture in the organization to promote data-driven decision-making. Um, when we're looking at a wider scope, right, a whole community rather than one organization, it becomes uh, really different than just like, here's how to think about our financial metrics, right? In a community, there are so many indicators. Um, <clears throat> and so I wanted to know if, uh, if there was a way that you focus in and, and cut through that noise or, or help people figure out what's most important to them and how to, how to stay focused on that. Yeah. I think the, the biggest kind of data cultural shift that, that we try to impart in our partners is really this concept of distributional thinking. And, you know, cause we have a tendency as, as humans um, to kind of look at a number and try to make sense of that number. But, but without the context of that number, it, it doesn't really mean anything. So if you said something like 23% of people in Wilmington live in, in Wilmington Census Tract 111 live in below the federal poverty line. Is that good? Is that bad? Is that typical? Is that normal for a city of Wilmington size? We have to look at that kind of histogram or that that you know density curve to try to say like, well, that puts us at the bottom 10% of cities our size or, or census tracts in North Carolina or whatever. So kind of just introducing that shift, that shift to distributional thinking has been huge for a lot of our partners because they start to say like, okay, now I can understand, you know, why that's a big deal or if it's a big deal. One of the things that, you know, there's 1200 nonprofits in Wilmington and there's no shortage of kind of passion and, and interest in helping out. Where the shortage is, is really understanding the problem and whether or not we're moving the needle. So <clears throat> you've got an organization that's pouring resources into this neighborhood. And at the end of the day, we don't know if it's actually helping because there's no kind of monitoring or reporting or tracking. Right. And it's the same thing. If like if this was you brought up kind of, you know, corp corporations and it's the same thing. It's like if you were working in an analytics group and a, in the marketing team was like, well, we don't know if this 
this promotion is working or not. It's like, well, we need to fix that, right? Like, let's generate a hypothesis. Let's identify our KPIs and let's track those KPIs so that when we come back in three years or six months or 18 months or whatever, when we think our hypothesis has been fulfilled, we can look back and say, did it work? So I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, a lot of the challenges are the same as you'd see at a large corporation. Yeah, no, that's exactly, I have a thought that I could table till the, till the end of your presentation. I don't want to derail you on it. Um, so John David, you steer us. Okay. Sorry. I'm a little distracted trying to get Molly back on. She may have to just log in or watch on YouTube and ask her questions. Unfortunately, I wanted her to get some FaceTime with you, Nick, cause she's, she's currently uh, in an entry level data science role, but she's interested in pivoting into your space. She would, she would be like the perfect persona to have this like conversation with. Um, Nick, let's, let's just jump back into your presentation. Sure. <clears throat> so I wanted to go through a use case to show you how this all kind of comes together and, and how we, uh, you know, actually do the work that we're doing. So familiar face for probably most of the people on the call. Uh, Michael Jordan grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, so has a special place in his heart. Um, last year or earlier this year, he, um, he, he gifted $10 million to, to uh, Novant Health to open these two medical clinics in New Hanover County. So, and he didn't just want them to be um, health clinics. He had very specific uh, criteria that he, that he wanted. Um, you know, you kind of see a, a little blurb here from, uh, from this press release. He wanted to focus on vulnerable communities. He wanted to focus on uninsured or underinsured um, people. So Novant Health had this, this problem. They had this big pile of money with this criteria, uh, a lot of public scrutiny. People are asking, you know, where are you going to put these things? Do you put them over here? Do you put them over there? Um, so they turned to us and said, help us figure out where to put these clinics. Um, we kind of know anecdotally where they, they're needed. We could, you know, we're health professionals. We, we see this stuff every day. But we need to have some data-driven reason for putting them in certain neighborhoods. Otherwise, people are going to feel left out or, or like we, we kind of favored one one area or another. <clears throat> so this is a perfect opportunity for us to use a lot of the data that we have in our community data platform. So basically what we did is we created this composite metric that takes these five different dimensions and creates kind of a, a clinic need score at the census tract um, geography level. So we took however many people were, you know, there's a lot of people who go to the emergency department who don't have health insurance. If there's an area that has a high number of, of people who, who go to the emergency department without insurance, we want to take that into account. We want to take percentage of, of uh, federal poverty lines, specifically 300 percent, which is um, the level at which people would be able to get free care, eligible for free care at these clinics. Um, households without access to a vehicle. You know, transportation is, of course, super important. Uh, this, this acuity, this was a new term for me and one that's really interesting, but there's this kind of phenomenon or, or kind of issue of people who go to the emergency department, but they didn't really have to, uh, it wasn't really a life threatening thing. And it's probably typically something that if they had, uh, frequent medical visits with a, a local practice, they wouldn't actually have have let this situation go to a point where they have to go to the emergency room. So if there's a high number of those kind of non-life-threatening emergency department visits coming from an area, that might be an indication that a, a, a new practice would, would benefit that community. And then food security. A lot of these new modern clinics that they're opening, um, they're trying to find ways to make them one-stop shops for people. It's like you're coming in to get your, you know, your COVID vaccine and your, you know, your, your blood blood test or whatever, we're going to, you know, we know that you're struggling with food. Here's a prescription to go down and get some, some food or, or a bag of, of uh, you know, canned food or whatever. So combining all of these things, we're able to create this score, uh, zero to one score at the neighborhood, um, actually at the block group level, which is one smaller than tracked, and, and really just look at these and identify areas of need. So all these ones that have a star beside them are ones that ranked highest 
on one of those dimensions of clinic need. And we go through here, we kind of combine them and we see, you know, there's a couple areas here that have very high, um, high clinic need scores. And so we provided just this to the, um, uh, to the hospital and also a map I'm gonna show you on the next page. And from this, they were able to say, the south side for sure needs one. North side already has a clinic. So maybe we just look at kind of, you know, boosting resources and capabilities in that clinic. That, that area doesn't need one. Uh, the next couple on the list are in the south side that could be served by the same one up top. But then this Creekwood area, very high, 0.83. Let's put one there as well. So they are going to be breaking ground here in the next couple months, I believe, on these two teal locations, these two teal dots here, proposed clinics. Um, this is an R-Shiny app that we built for them as they kind of explored areas of need. The dark purple areas are areas that have that high clinic need score we just walked through, light purple, and then kind of this, this white, kind of almost transparent, are very low. Uh, we've got bus stops on here, existing nonprofits, existing clinics, the hospital, and then the proposed uh, clinics. So we gave them that table that you just saw, this app and this kind of little blurb over here on the right and said, here's what we think. Uh, you know, now you have the ability to make this, this decision. And, and they did. Fantastic. This is so cool. Uh, so this is an, an app that someone could like bring up on their phone and look around or on their computer. Yep. Uh, as they click around on each of these census tracts, there's a little kind of hover pop up thing that, that comes up with some demographic information about uh, the neighborhood. They can click on each of these dots and say this is bus stop number 38 on the corner of, you know, Dawson and whatever. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's all in our shiny. Oh, cool. Yeah, actually, one of um, one of my subcontractors does a lot of our shiny development. Um, do you, so do you have more slides or do you want to jump into the uh, Q&A? That was kind of a, a use case. I do have a couple more slides uh, that I can show as, as other examples of work that we've done. But I wanted to kind of see if there were there were questions first. Or I can, there I can are. Talk longer so, if I need to. Okay. All right. So this, I'm so bummed out that Molly can't be on here to ask you these questions herself face to face. Um, so Molly says, what kind of skill set are you looking for in your data scientists? Uh, do you use GIS when analyzing those composite metrics? We're going to take a quick pause from the episode so that I can give you some more information about our career services program. Over the last four years, I have developed a very effective approach to teaching the foundations of analytics. And I've taken that same curriculum from my case studies and business analytics class at Greensboro College and turned it into a career services program. So if you've ever thought to yourself as you're listening to this podcast, man, John David's students are really lucky. You can have a very similar experience to them. Just check the link in the description down below. My career services program offers you an analytics foundations curriculum. So this will shore up any gaps in knowledge that you might have in landing either a promotion or maybe even your very first analytics job. And then you get to work one-on-one -on -one with me to help build your personal brand. So we will look at your resume and also help you develop a customized portfolio. All right, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, so we are uh, primarily an R shop. So we use R almost entirely. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know. I get a lot. Of, I get a lot of hate from the Python crowd, but you know it is what it is. You got to you got to choose at some point. So um, you know Python's great, but we use R. Um, so a lot of the stuff that we're doing, we're not using kind of GI like ArcGIS or Esri tools kind of specifically. We do use some of that stuff for mapping. Um, really. Skill set is a really interesting thing for, for data science. We're not doing a lot of kind of, you know, I always tell people if you're looking for super bleeding edge, deep learning, TensorFlow, image recognition, is this a panda or a dog type stuff? I don't have any use for that, that skill set. Yeah, I just, I, we're just not there yet. A lot of the stuff we're doing is super descriptive in nature, and it's just, there's a, a big 
communication element. So it's, can you take this complex problem, this pain point from the community, can you turn it into a data science question, right? Can you break it into the pieces that we can use data science to answer? Can you create the visualizations using R uh, and then tell that story? And that's kind of a hard thing to unpack. So it's it sounds like kind of a cop out of an answer, but that's the skill set that we're looking for is that storytelling and communication piece. Of course, yeah, you I mean, the chops. But yeah, <laughs> well, I see that all the time, and it seems to be. I'm not quite sure why, like the culture around like analytics, data science, or just data jobs in general. Um, there seems to be this overemphasis on hard skills. It seems like, oh, if I can just learn how to build this machine learning algorithm then I'll get my dream job. And what's funny is I've built my entire consultancy around, I know very little code. Like the the SQL coding that I know is like, I know how to go on Reddit and find someone who has a query similar to mine, copy and paste it, and then kind of like adjust it to mine. But I don't know, understand the fundamentals of coding at all. But that being said, the analytics work I've done for my clients over the years has been worth tens of millions of dollars. And part of that is just, finding the data, pulling it into Tableau and putting it into a usable format. So that communication piece is huge. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's this tendency to kind of jump right in and and build, like you said, these, these you know, super complex machine learning models. But you have to start somewhere. You have to say, how many, how many customers do you have? Do you know how many customers you have as a business? If you don't, let's plot that first because that's important, right? Where do your customers right. live? Where do they buy? Uh, what do they What do they buy? What do they uh, You know, what do, What do they? How old are they? Where Where do they live? You know, all these things that if you ask a business that those questions and they don't know the answers, then let's start there, and then we can kind of get into because if we don't know those questions, all those big models that you that you build are completely worthless. You're just wasting your time and your money. Yeah, <laughs> and. You know, when we, so my, my analytics experience has almost all been in nonprofits and community, right? I started out at Center for Creative Leadership, which is a educational nonprofit, largely serving business and corporate clients. Um, but I was in a, a group that worked with foundations, schools, and from my experience, not, so when I was, um, getting the opportunity to jump into analytics and program evaluation, it coincided with that organization making a big a shift, a cultural shift in some ways, to expand the amount of resources dedicated towards uh, being able to answer these questions. And I've seen since then in nonprofits here in Greensboro, around the country, through different um, Code for America work, that evaluation and analytics are often underinvested. And so, you know, you're talking about businesses. Do you know how many customers you have, right? Can you pull that up on a graph? Well, before we answer the question, are donor investment dollars making a significant difference in our community outcomes? <laughs> we need to have those donors and their dollars in one place and know where, how they're funneling into our programs and then what those programs are doing. And hypothesis generation and problem definition is much more important than having a deep understanding of statistics when it comes to that. Um, and, and being able to recognize the whole pipeline from donors to programs to outcomes and what the important details to pay attention to are in that flow. Awesome. All right. So we got more uh, questions coming in. So Ben, I wanted you to elaborate on this. How do you grab the attention of these nonprofits so they don't think this can't be applicable to me? I'm not fully understanding that question, Ben. If you can comment some additional context to that, um, let's jump to this other question. And hopefully Ben is still on and listening and can elaborate a little bit more. So um, Habib is asking, why are there no entry level positions in the marketplace? Is, well, I guess that 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 question has an assumption baked into it. Are there no data science entry level jobs in the nonprofit sector? I think it's tough. Uh, I don't. I, I think there is a shortage of them, and I think some of the entry level positions do have unrealistic expectations. They, a lot of the, um, a, a lot of roles. You know, it's 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 so much that it's become a meme on LinkedIn and stuff. Now you'll see these posts, and it's just like this 
you know, needed 10 years of experience in this skill that was invented three years like ago. Five years or whatever. ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, it certainly is a shortage. I, I don't know what the answer is. I know some, some places offer these kind of, you know, paid internships and stuff. And there's kind of this, a lot of controversy about that as well. So I'm not sure I can answer why there isn't, but uh, I think there is a shortage of them. Yeah. Well, I actually have a theory on this that just popped into my mind is that there, there's probably a shortage of managers who understand analytics. So they want someone who is seasoned and not only knows the skill set, but knows how to deploy that asset in a, in a, in a way that gives a return on investment. That's, that's exactly what I was going to say, John David. Um, there, as I said, is a tendency of organizations to have underinvested historically in this skill, right? And especially nonprofits are now like scrambling to catch up like, oh my God, we need an evaluation analyst, right? We want one person to do it all because salaries are expensive. And so let's create this job description that gives us someone with that full skill set and oh we're gonna pay fifty five thousand a year yeah it's like looking through those jobs you know an analyst is like well i could do that or i could make a trillion dollars yeah nick we the last conversation we had we talked about this in depth about the the money that's in the nonprofit space yeah it's it's a um it's a separate yeah um you're putting yourself in a separate income bracket. You have to know that kind of going into it. I mean, you know, I, I came out of data science consulting. I went into the nonprofit world. I, um, I, it was an intentional move for me and I knew what I was getting into, but a lot of people don't know what that is. Now we, we, at our, our organization, we recognize that we're investing a little bit more than significantly more, I'd say than 50,000, but it's not an exaggeration, Tim, because I know other organizations in, in North Carolina, that's their budget. Like I have fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 to pay for this position. And, uh, and I have no idea what skill set I need for it. So I'm kind of just throwing stuff at the wall and, and, um, yeah, it's, it's a challenge <clears throat> and it's an investment for an organization. So they want to make sure they get someone really good. Um, well, so yeah. can I, can I go deeper on that and ask, ask a question, John, John David, I'm going to steal your interviewer hat for a <laughs> second if I can, but okay. how did you, how did you get there with Cape fear collective? Um, and specifically, this is the kind of I, I've since um, three years ago with a graduate school project on community indicators uh, in Guilford County. I've been working on pushing on and trying to move the conversation forward about community driven or community based data driven decision making um, here. And I'm really inspired by the fact that you guys have Cape Fear Collective and think that every community needs a regional body like that. And I want to know about how you um, got the, made the case for that funding in this landscape of, of underinvestment in analytics and evaluation. Yeah. So um, I could go really deep on this. Uh, probably won't on this call. We could have another one. But basically, uh, I'm, I am lucky to have a, a CEO who's a, a bit of a visionary and really has made the case to um, local organizations, Live Oak Bank, a couple others in, in the Wilmington area who we, you know, if we're going to do this right, we need to invest in it. And here's what doing it right looks like. And here's what doing it right costs. And if you explain kind of why it's needed, then uh, then the answer gets gets really simple. And it's just like, are you, would, do you want to spend this much and then just not know in five years if anything you did worked, or do you want to spend this much more, and then we'll know in in a you know we'll be able to fail fast on a lot of these initiatives. We'll know within six to twelve months if this is working, and if it's not, we can pivot quickly. If it is, we'll invest more, et cetera. We can scale. If you if you just look at the the numbers on that equation of kind of the the knowing early or just not knowing at all, the investment makes sense. And I think that's the kind of the math and the the argument that we that we tell people. <laughs> you know, you're making me think of so right now. So I, I just launched my own learning platform. So for um, analytics education, and we're we're pivoting on a weekly basis right now. So like thinking about investing in something and then seeing a six, that seems like so far away from, from me right now, but 
I guess with these larger organizations, that's like a really nimble pivot time, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff it's going to take, some of the stuff that we're doing, it's going to take years to know if it actually worked or not. I mean, you're talking about kind of, you know, solving affordable housing or, or solving right. kind of educational inequities. I mean, these are these are answers we won't know. We won't know if the things that we're doing worked for for years, but we can kind of point to the research. We can point to other things that we've seen working. And we can kind of look at those little signals, right? Those little signals in, in the um, uh, in the noise, I guess, to try to say like, okay, we're confident that this is this is working. We're going to kind of dive a little bit deeper here, invest a little bit more. Yeah, and, and what's interesting, um, you, you were talking about community impact. That's I've done quite a bit of consulting in the nonprofit space, doing impact reports for nonprofits, and the kind of my sales pitch is that this is your sales tool. This is how you go to donors or, or people who have funding and say, here's the impact we had over last year. And I'm doing that all in Tableau. I mean, I don't know, look at code, like I said earlier. But um, I mean, e even if you know basic data visualization tools, and I guess then it kind of, you have to have that conversation around, like you were saying, clearly defining what are the metrics for success or failure. Um, and I, th I think that can that can happen kind of internally with an organization, you don't necessarily have to bring in a new, a new hire or data scientist, but yeah, it's yeah. really interesting. And, and that would be part of my response. A question that just came up, came out in the, in the chat. I see from, um, which one? Uh, Chalaku, um, is about what kind of machine learning models you may apply for the effectiveness of donor, donor dollars. And, in my work doing consulting with and impact reports for nonprofits, it's more like what you just said. How have we worked to figure out the metrics and the theory of change that those donor dollars are supporting? And it's much less about a machine learning inference and more about hitting the, the statistics associated with that metric and, and summative statistics specifically um, about whether or not people um, people's experience changed, right? Whether or not people's um, experience in the community was affected by that program, you don't you don't need a um, long term machine learning model. Well, maybe it'll help to discover that. What's more effective is go out and hit the ground and interview people and do focus groups, right? And then we start talking about qualitative analysis and almost take it into a completely other uh, side of our dashboard that doesn't have line graphs and regression models at all, but rather themes from community conversations. And sometimes those are a lot more illustrative and there's a lot more context packed into those insights than anything behind the summative and descriptive statistics. Yeah, I think, the yeah, I think that it's, it will, so they're talking about machine learning, I think just an aggregation. So what is the average income or the sum of people who have gotten over the poverty line? I mean, that, that is what's going to tell the narrative that the donors are going to say, yeah, here's my check. Go take it. Sorry, Nick, I, I interrupted you. No, I think that's, I think that's, that's spot on. And I think also the, the piece around qualitative research. Now, I also don't want to, um, so someone else had asked, do, do we do any hiring at Cape Fear Collective? I did hire two data scientists in January. I hired another one in August. So I'm a team of uh, four now, including myself. And so they would, um, they would not be happy with me if I kind of continued to downplay our, our chops. We are doing causal inference. <laughs> so we are doing some of these kind of sophisticated techniques now that we've kind of got the foundation started. But still, I think a lot of this this focus on, oh, you need to be able to do, you know, TensorFlow machine learning models that can operate, you know, on, you know, petabytes of data and stuff like that. We're just not there as a, as a, as an organization, as a, as a community yet. So there's a lot of low hanging fruit. A lot of this stuff is aggregations. A lot of this stuff, the qualitative piece really comes in, but going back to the kind of, the causal inference piece, that's for sure the next frontier for us to, to tackle. When you look at all these different things, I had that graph with the nine different categories. You can't talk about education without talking about economic indicators. You can't talk about health without talking about food and transportation and all these other things. Like they're all interrelated. 
and this kind of um, do calculus or causal inference or even some, some Bayesian techniques that we're using is helping kind of uncover some of these these patterns. All right. Well, I've got so Stoney, one of our super fans, is at well, it's this is more of a comment. So he says attempt to get an internship by working on a side project that is similar to what the employer slash nonprofit is doing. So I think I mean, so we're talking about internships. So there's you can get a job, you can get an internship. It's been my experience, at least the nonprofits around Greensboro, is that they're hungry for any volunteers, especially volunteers who have um, any type of like analytics knowledge or, or, or tool set. So are, are there any volunteer opportunities either within your organization or what you see kind of out, out in the, out in the nonprofit space? There for, there for sure are volunteer opportunities. Um, and there's the, a good way to kind of get involved with a lot of nonprofits is, is these hackathons. There's a couple different civic hackathons mm -hmm. going on. There's a group out of Seattle called Democracy Lab that always highlights several nonprofits. Some are, are West Coast based, but a lot of them are, are spread across the United States. We've got a hackathon coming up for um, Hack for a Blue Economy, which is a kind of coastal economy uh, concept coming up next month. Um, it's a great way to kind of meet other kind of like-minded people in the space of course tim's involved in code for america all these local code brigades are going to have people who are interested in that stuff um per personally and kind of um uh kind of candidly volunteer volunteers can be tough to manage from an organization mm -hmm. standpoint because you know i'm not going to ask somebody if someone says i can have that by the end of the week and then they don't it's it's tough to be like well you said you're going to have this it's like, i'm volunteering you know what do you want i have people kind of flake out all the time no judgment i mean i get it it's a volunteer gig you got your own paid thing too but it's hard to kind of assign and a lot meaningful projects to volunteers when i i can't guarantee that those things are actually going to get get done in any sort of so it's a hard thing for an organization to offer so if you do find an organization that's willing to provide you a volunteership or internship be really kind of honest and upfront about how much you're actually willing willing to commit uh and and, and try to like give yourself a good off-ramp to that project so that you don't burn yourself out and just kind of get strung along like say i've got five hours a week for the next two months to de dedicate to this project. If you have a project that fits that, great. If not, I'm probably not the person that you need because I'm probably going to flick out on you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Man, I wish that the people who got involved in Code for Greensboro projects <laughs> would say that kind of thing up front. Let me, but let me just agree with you, amplify and make my own plug, um, which is that local civic data projects. So for instance, um, where Hunter and I have been working together and hit pause on uh, our outcome for just a minute while a busy season has hit, but uh, Hunter Brown, I mean, the intern from High Point that some of you all who are watching will remember <laughs> as, a, as a frequent guest on the pod, um, taking uh, fire data that fire incidents reports that the city of Greensboro makes the raw data over a hundred thousand rows freely available. So what can we learn about fire incidents across the city of Greensboro for the last five years? Right. And then we can using the framework of code for Greensboro and the institutional structure that we have, you know, take that back to Greensboro fire department and say, like, Hey, we, you know, scraped that data. Actually, you don't even need to scrape it. We pulled that from the open data portal, visualized it and made this map. Would you like it? Right. And then they're like, oh yeah. And hey, by the way, we have a position open doing this. One of you should apply. And, and that's happened before with Code for Greensboro projects, not in the data realm, um, the example I'm thinking of is uh, uh, a guy who got a job at IBM after working on building a voter information app with us. Um, and so it may seem like a tough sell to invest your time and energy in these projects that don't have a clear 
place in the, um, someone called it a 12-story stairwell, your career path, but it is a step. And whatever you choose to make that step, whether it's volunteering for a nonprofit, getting involved in a community hackathon, um, or something else, those are real-world examples that you can pull out in your interview and say, look what I built. Look at the people who I worked with. And look at my GitHub, by the way. Everything is open, transparent. You can see it. Rather than saying, well, yeah, I took a data camp course, right? You can actually say, look at this fire incident map that I made. And that's powerful. Data camp courses, certifications are important too. Um, all kinds of, you know, marketing analytics and John David certifications too. <laughs> yeah, building a portfolio for yourself is so important. And and I think, you know, you, you bring up a, a kind of interesting point there at the end with kind of data camp and these other boot camps. Your, your GitHub can be projects that you learned in those classes too. Like it can be like a lot of times I'll go to someone's GitHub and it's, hey, I took this 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 course and kind of like just given this data set and I did the stuff to it. And then here's where I took it after that. And that's almost even more impressive than kind of seeing people who just kind of do their homework assignments on GitHub or whatever. But I will say as a kind of a quick little blurb about GitHub, there's nothing more frustrating than if someone puts GitHub on their um, a GitHub link on their resume or their LinkedIn profile and you go and it's like one repo with one line of Python code that says, hello world. Like if that's if that's. If that's all your GitHub is, then first of all, you need to build it up, but don't don't put it on your resume until there's something actually meaningful for me to see there. But I think that's a really good way of showing your um your your you know your your kind of coding projects that you're working on. I think it's a relationship building opportunity though. So last week's episode we had Hunter Loftus who he just he um, was a Facebook engineer. Um, apparently I didn't know this about these big tech companies, but they just have open source projects. And what he did was Adobe, what Adobe is trying to migrate from a desktop version to the cloud. He fixed their tooltip. It was just an open source project. And he's been working on that tooltip functionality over the past six months. Opportunity, uh, an opportunity opened up and then he got hired I mean, he got actively recruited for that role. I mean, I think that we can kind of take that mental model of, hey, Nick, I know that you're working on, let's say, what do you say, food deserts in Wilmington, maybe build out a visualization in that space, post it to Tableau Public, it can literally, a, a Tableau Public dashboard can function as, as as an app. So you can, you can use, what is it, iframe to embed it on your website, and then people can click on and say, all right, well, you know, what, what is the income, average income by this, I don't know, I'm I'm not the GIS architect, but you could build an interactive dashboard that Nick, you could put on your website and then that can create value for, you know, your user base or the people in that region. Yeah, I I think, you know, and and this kind of speaks to a more broader, I'm actually doing a talk, I think next week, someone's got me doing a data resume and interview tips thing. And, and one, and the re- relationship building piece is so important. I think instead of just kind of spraying out these resumes to all these organizations, reaching out to somebody and saying, hey, I see that you're working on food security. I'm interested in working for your organization. Here are some targeted questions that I have about food security or some interesting apps that I've done or work that I've done or whatever. And that, that gets me to respond instead of just kind of like, hey, random message on LinkedIn. Hey, are you hiring at Cape Fear Collective? I have no idea who you are. Uh, I don't have any idea, you know, what's going like, just don't send somebody that, that message. I think the relationship piece is so, so important there. Okay. I have like, this is a thought that I'm just kind of still working out. I, so we're starting to do, um, we're, we're, my, my, my learning platform is taking this similar approach of like open data. So this weekend I'm actually going to be dropping all my financials for the past. We just launched four months ago and I'm going to say, here's all of our data this is a great opportunity if you've never worked with real data to analyze some and, you know, tell me something interesting about my data source. I have been shocked. So two, three weeks ago, we, we just did, hey, here's one week of ad tests for us. The VP of analytics for Truist, the sixth largest bank on earth, participated in our challenge. And it's so weird to think about this high level professional at this huge organization taking time out of their day and analyzing my data. But it's it's an emotional bid is what we're doing. Like, 
Like if you have something to show, that is such a stronger conversation facilitator than, hey, I love what you're doing. Can you can you give me something or can you tell me something? It's like you've already done the you front loaded the work. And then there's a conversation. It's something interesting. I mean, I guess what I've learned from this is that a lot of these high level professionals are, I think they're a little bored with what they do and them being able to look at a different use case. that's real. Actually, like I kind of struck on something there, which I'm really surprised by actually. Yeah. I think that's a great, a great opportunity for people to get in and start digging with real, real, real data. But I mean, the the same thing applies though with the nonprofit space of, you know, if I if I were to send send this dashboard to you, this theoretical dashboard of, hey Nick, I created this uh, heat map in Wilmington that shows you know food scarcity by zip code. Do you have any Do you have any ways that I can improve this? You're probably much more likely to s- respond because it's this it's a that emotional bid. Like you've you've already got something to analyze, and then I can also be like. Hey, I'd love to help you guys out. I'm, you're already doing the work, so I think that. Okay, I this will one hundred. I will one hundred percent reply to that message if somebody there sends me that message. I will promise you right now. If somebody sends me a message and say, "I built built this app on food scarcity in Wilmington. Do you have any feedback?" I will guarantee I will respond to that. I don't. I can't guarantee I have a project or or a job for you, but I'll for sure will will do that. And I think that's that's kind of the point you're getting at. Like if you make it a relevant relationship building conversation. Then you're then you're building your network, right? And then as I start to now, when I I do have an opening in in four months or six months or whatever, and I see your name come across the the application, you know, still can't guarantee that I'm going to hire you, but at least kind of a part of me is like, oh, that's the person who sent me that that food scarcity app or whatever. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a great point. You know, what I think the word is it's execution. So you run a risk by bringing on these volunteers. I just kind of like realized this as you were talking through that of, Hey, if Tim, you tell me that you're going to do X, Y, and Z for me. And I expect it in a month from now. If I have promised one of my donors that this is going to happen, I have put myself in a vulnerable position and that could make my organization look incompetent. But if someone's already executed and done the work, that is a completely different conversation because there's, there's kind of like, uh, I feel like risk is something that I'm, I'm like recently trying to wrap my head around of, I've been so high risk up until this point. <laughs> I'm 32 now, so I need to like start thinking about, okay, well, I've built something. What are the threats to what's going on here? Um, but yeah, I think that even if you were to send that, you know, let's say that's that food scarcity heat map to an end donor. I mean, even at, as is, it's at least something. All right. So did you want to go? Well, actually, we I've been neglecting the chat. So Matt Brad had an interesting point. He says, I don't know if it's board. Okay, he's talking about like the high level professionals. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, so that's that's an interesting point. I gave them an opportunity to tinker and build their own personal brand. So it's like if you know, maybe this person wants to get out of banking and maybe into marketing. So here's like kind of a conduit there. Interesting. Uh, well, some people, some people I know is you as a, you're a, you're a teacher. I mean, I learned, I used to teach high school math before I got into data science and I, I learn best when I'm teaching. So part of my motivation went with something like that, and it could be this VP for Truist too, is like, I've got experience and knowledge that I can kind of bring to this. And it actually, when you explain something to, to somebody else, it forces you to kind of think of different ways and reinforces that understanding in your own brain too. I think that's part of it too. Gotcha. Can I, can I just leave a leave a point here that's sort of um, unrelated, but also relates to thinking differently about um, the things that you do day in and day out. Take a moment and copy and paste the questions that Stony has been dropping into the chat <laughs> because. It's Which really one do you want just, me to pull uh, up? Uh, tw- the, the be able to answer why someone would want to spend time looking at the map. So we were talking about a map of fire incidences in Greensboro. There's also yeah. food deserts. But, but if you have a data visualization and you don't provide that context, right, 
um, then you can have the best model and the best display of it, but if no one can understand it in five seconds when they look at it, people who are, let's say, asked to write checks to two out of five nonprofit organizations, right, which a lot of these big donors often have a lot of those different requests coming in. This thing needs to be quickly understandable. Um, but my larger point was just that these questions and others are ones that we as analysts should have like on the whiteboard in our offices, right? Every time you make something, look back and ask, so even these next set of questions, how will the target audience understand my report, right? How would I talk about this? And when you take the initiative to do a project in the community that might not be you know, related to your day-to-day -day job, um, it gives you the opportunity to approach that in a new way, to relate to a different target audience that has different needs and needs different context uh, than your main target audience. So from seasoned analysts um, and experienced industry professionals to people who are new to the field, I think that getting out of that silo um, is a really important step. Yeah, and I think exploring different mediums for even the same stuff. You know, like I've got, uh, there's oftentimes at Cape Fear Collective where we've got um, an app that shows this and it's interactive, it's got all this stuff. And then there's a deck that kind of walks through this in greater detail, but you can't just send that deck out because not everyone's gonna have the, the kind of luxury of having you or one of your data scientists sit there and walk them through this. So sometimes it's just, what's the most, I've actually got a, a couple examples of what we call data bytes pulled up here. If you pull up the screen, John David, um, yes. we've got this other, this other medium method that we use called data bytes, where it's just this one shot kind of designed um, view of a, of a graph that might be in an app or something. And these, these go in our newsletters, they go on LinkedIn and it just allows you, it's got everything there to kind of walk through some specific insight and kind of that idea around the headline. Like a lot of times, it, as data analysts or data scientists, we, we kind of we kind of just fluff the headline or we, we kind of forget about the headline. We make it something like housing, housing problems by census tracts. Like that doesn't say what's going on. Housing problems vary across the region. Right. Like this is a, a better use of that real estate than than just saying something really simple about what gra what metric is being uh, plotted on the X axis or the Y axis. So I think that, you know, use all the different mediums that you have available uh, when you're telling that story as well. Yeah, and this looks great. It's, it's also branded really, really sharply. I mean, did you, did you guys have like a graphic designer? Or did you like outsource that or did you do this? This is all this is all me. I wear a lot of hats in our organization. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it looks fantastic, it's, especially like the use of color on that, that the bottom, the bottom um, left one. Nick, yeah, can we a, get? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go. Oh, I was going to say, can we get real crunchy about the R code here? <laughs> but... uh, yeah. Yeah. The R code, the, the top map is R code generated, but of course these, these screenshots are done in PowerPoint. Pull it into PowerPoint. So, yeah. Yeah. But um, I think, uh, are there any other questions? I think there's a question from Ben back in the. So, yeah. So I was hoping Ben would elaborate on what he was saying. So yeah, we can circle back around. Where that's twelve twenty six. So his question is, yeah, yeah, this one. Um, so I think this is actually a really interesting question. I think I, I think I see what you're what you're going for here, Ben. Where it's like a lot of these organizations just say like, why does we don't know data? We don't we don't we're not good at it, and and data is kind of scary. Why is it important to us? Um, so I think. The, the way we try to appeal to them, I think somebody said one of the, somewhere was, um, you know, give them something, give them some little nugget, right? Give them something. And this, this works in the, in the, you know, corporate space too. Um, you know, the product team doesn't necessarily want to work with your analytics team. Well, give them some little nugget, find some little, when you're in a meeting with them, find something that kind of, you know, bothers them or they can't quite figure out and try to try to give them some little nugget to, to help them answer. But the, the reality of it is until these big funders, require this data measurement, then the nonprofits aren't going to do the work. 
And so the culture change has to happen from where the money is coming from, because when you get these grants, so you get this big grant from KP Reynolds or any Casey Foundation or data.org or whatever, if they don't put into the grant requirement, you need to measure these KPIs over the next X amount of time. This is the cadence. This is the report format until they build that into the funding. These organizations, a lot of them aren't going to do it. And, and I hate to sound kind of a, uh, a lot of these organizations aren't like this, but there are some of these organizations that don't want to know if they're, if they're not doing, uh, if they're not moving the needle or not, because then they have to, a really tough situation to look back at the last 25 years of their organization's history and say, we haven't moved it, the needle at all. Um, so sometimes there's a fear of knowing. Listen, cut, cut me off, John David, before I get into um, too radical of a of a worldview here, but um, <laughs> I already like the setup. For this. <laughs> Nick, I, I call that part of the nonprofit industrial complex is that there is, a, there's an element of not wanting to know of course you've because part, <laughs> yeah, well, we'll Google that term and then the uh, follow up. Nonprofit space. Yeah. <laughs> um, ser seriously though, to Nick's point, until there are more, um, data literate funders and people who really see the value of investing in an analytics and evaluation pipeline to accompany donor investments. Um, there aren't going to be roles opening up for those entry level analysts and especially for small community nonprofits. And I've found this in my consulting work. Um, there's not a robust ability to invest in evaluation to accompany programs where they're barely scraping together the salary for their um, program facilitators, right? And so they make, you know, contract out an evaluation that's supported by a grant from one program. But when I'm working on that, I'm like, okay, wait, the rest of this is a little bit um, under-informed by the data, right? And so what I wanna come back to, um, and something that I think is materializing in Greensboro and Guilford County, along with the um, American Recovery Act funding, is a centralized resource might be embedded within your local community foundation to provide that sort of support and coordination to local nonprofits and help them invest in data literacy. But until that kind of thing becomes a, um, a funded position at the foundations that are funding this work, I think we'll see that it's hard to solve these problems and we get piecemeal solutions. what he said <laughs> um tim you can you can get off the soapbox now <laughs> uh, I, was trying, I, I was trying to put uh i was trying to put my email and stuff in the chat but i, I wasn't able to i'm gonna drop it here someone can drop i'm not sure what i'm doing wrong here um okay. but yeah you're absolutely right um it it, it needs to start at the top and, and you know these nonprofits. it's not they don't have the skill set. They don't have the time. It's like, well, now you're telling me I have to ha I have to learn how to do. I have to learn statistics. I don't want to do that. I just want to feed people. It's like, well, unfortunately, we don't know if you're actually feeding the right people or enough people, or you could be feeding more. This optimization process, this resource allocation, there's all these things that we could do to help you uh, if you let us. I will say this though. I think that the overall culture in this space is changing to where, because I think a lot about like how big is the overall addressable market for people who want analytics jobs. And I think that this is really just phase one, like, like people who are educated to get business intelligence or data scientists or data analyst roles. I think phase two, which is rapidly approaching, is if you're a marketing specialist or you're a sales specialist, you need to know data because that that is, I mean, it's I think it's going to be everywhere within the workspace. So I'm, I'm curious what it'll look like in 10, 15 years, because I think that, you know, the people who are signing the checks and making the ultimate decisions are 
older and I think they're less data savvy and generally speaking, but you know, as they start to age out and newer people get into that space, I think they're going to want to say, well, what, what's the impact of this? I mean, in, in hard, tangible dollars and cents. So that's, this is my two cents. I mean, it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. So what do you think, Tim? So I, I would agree with that. And as you start to look through um, job descriptions more and more these days, you see that word uh, data savvy. Well, you may not see savvy, but data something, data informed, mm -hmm. right? Attached to all kinds of different positions. Um, and I think that hopefully phase two has us really focusing on um, data literacy as well as, um, you know, the, the begin, the data competency or the, the, I know data level, right. But do you know about the context that has to surround the data? You know, being able to say what the P value and a regression means doesn't mean anything to people who can't put food on the table and the nonprofits in the community aren't effectively supporting those, those food security needs that they have. Um, but they do know enough to, to tell us in a focus group or an interview about why the nonprofit programs aren't working that well. Um, and so recognizing when you need to get beyond the numbers and beyond the statistics is something that in and amongst these hard skill focuses that are part of the phase one, maybe. Um, and, and you emphasize this when you talk about the dearth of focusing on soft skills, John David, um, that I, I hope that's part of where we go next. Um, and I'll just put this, um, this suggestion out there that uh, here at Transform Greensboro, Code for Greensboro is going to host a community data literacy workshop next month. Um, nice. And so if you're local in the area and maybe I, I want to get it together to stream it potentially, um, keep an eye out for that. And I'll, I'll try to make sure I amplify it through you, John David, so that folks on the fans yeah, of I mean, the podcast. Maybe pod we can, could stream it through the podcast if you wanted to. That would, be, that would be a huge signal boost. But that would be an interesting, uh, from a technical, how to set that up. Oh, we could talk about that later. Nick, so, yeah, I don't know. Do you, you don't have a hard stop at one, do you? <laughs> I know we're five minutes over. I have a squishy, I have a squishy stop at one. Apparently. Okay. All right. Well, we can, we can wrap up then. Yeah. Nick, Tim, Molly. Unfortunately, Molly is, you know, not, <laughs> not here live here but in spirit. Uh, this was fantastic. Uh, thank you both and everyone who tuned in on the live chat. This was awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And like I said, I put my email um, in the uh, in the chat, or somebody did for me. So I reach did. out if you have any questions. Thank you, and uh, or connect on LinkedIn. But thanks, thanks y'all. All right, see ya, Scott David. Thanks everyone. See ya. Hey, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I'm curious, were there any valuable insights or lessons that you learned? One thing that could hugely help us out is if you just took 30 seconds and left us a review with a little blurb about what you learned. Thank you so much for your time and attention, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Hey, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I'm curious, were there any valuable insights or lessons that you learned? One thing that could hugely help us out is if you just took 30 seconds and left us a review with a little blurb about what you learned. Thank you so much for your time and attention, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.